I'm sure you've heard this illustration before. It's an old story that's uh, rolled out quite a lot. And, you know, I am conscious that when preachers get up and they give these illustrations, a lot of them, when you dig into the depth of it, there's no truth to it. So when I do give these type of illustrations that are well used, uh, I always go and fact check it and, and spend some time and dig into it to see if the account actually happened. And this is one of these ones that um, the, this account actually did happen from the, the, the actual autobiography of, of the man that it happened to, and it's been corroborated as well. What has happened with this is that this, this illustration has took on different forms through the ages. Um, but this, this apparently, as best as I can, can know, uh, happened, um, and this, this was in the late 70s. And a man by the name of Neil Martin, who was a former member of the British Parliament, he was uh, given a group of his constituents a guided tour around the Houses of Parliament. And during the visit, he bumps into Lord Halsham, who's all geared up in his, in his full regalia. And of course, he's familiar with him. And, and Halsham, recognising Martin, shouts out, Neil! And the, the group that's with Neil Martin because of the regalia of Lord Halsham and the authority that he carries, they all suddenly get down on their knees because he shouts out the word Neil. Now, again, that has been corroborated as something that actually happened. But, you know, just that illustration gives us a little thought that, that these people, they recognise some form of authority. And whenever, whenever the word from the authority came to Neil, although they got it misconstrued as to what the man was saying, their immediate response was to Neil. They Neil. And as we think about Palm Sunday, and as we think about all that the Lord was doing here, because this was the presentation of the King, and and that didn't change. He was the King. That's never changed. He is King Jesus. But the response of the people did change. And the response of the people was varied, but that didn't affect who he was. He was indeed King. And as I thought about this whole concept of, of kneeling to the king or really responding to the king, I thought about Philippians. Turn there, Philippians chapter 2. Maybe this has even come into your mind as I've started this morning. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 11. It says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. At the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Every knee will bow because he is the king of kings. And that is the right response to who he is. It's to bow the knee. Bow. But when he came the first time, he was still that same king. He was the king that when he came the first time will be the same king that comes the second time, although he comes in judgment this time, but his sovereignty was never in question at his first coming or his second coming. He's God in the flesh. 
So the question is, if, if this is the response of Jesus when he comes in his second coming, why was it not the response when he came in his first coming? Because it was the same Jesus. And the response should have been the same. The response at the second coming is yielding to who he is, to the weight of his glory. And that should have been the response at the first coming. It should have been the response. Not an outward act, but the inward yielding of a heart to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And today we think about Palm Sunday, the 10th of Nisan. And we think about all that happens there and, you know, there are all different traditions around it. But, you know, really when you get into the, the crux and the context of it and uh, look at it, I really believe, that, you know, the, the Passover lamb was being selected there. And you can see that in, in Judaism where they would, in the 10th of Nisan, they would select the Passover lamb and get it ready for, for, for the sacrifice that would happen on the 14th of Nisan. And this day marks that day when, when the king came down, but actually, really, he's being presented as a sacrificial lamb. He comes down the Mount of Olives, and this event that we are familiar with transpires. And what I want to do this morning, and as we've, we've read those passages of Scripture, is just to look and see um, two responses in those passages that we see and, uh, you know, it, it really should be a time of reflection for us. I think Easter uh, week, the Passion Week, whatever you want to call it, should be a greatest time of reflection for the believer. And it should be a mixed emotions time. That's the thing about being a believer. You know, when you think about Good Friday, it should be mixed emotions. It should be. It should be sorrow and joy mingled in this uh, just... It's unnatural, it's a supernatural thing to feel that. That Christ hung upon Calvary's cross. That he went there and he died for us. And, and, and that should break our hearts. That he had to uh, lower himself to our level to come down and rescue us because of our sin. It's our sin that nailed him to the cross. And that should break our hearts. This is the perfect Lord Jesus, the Son of God. And he takes the punishment, the humiliation, the mockery for us. And that should hurt. But yet he did it for us so that we might live with him. Joy upon joy upon joy. We see the death we get to Easter Sunday and we celebrate he is risen he is risen let not your heart be sad and don't be troubled for he is risen and what a weekend of reflection it is about how insignificant we are and how almighty and all powerful and all compassionate he is that he would do that for us so as we reflect about these things, I want to challenge you and think, how are you going to respond to who he is? Foremost. Apostle Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified. It's Christ first, cross second. Who he is and what he's done. Let's look at the responses we see in our passage this morning. 
Here's the first response that I want to highlight. It's the response from the crowd, simply. It's Passover week. The crowd has gathered. They come for their uh, holiest time of the year. And Jerusalem is absolutely buzzing. It is hiving. It's one of those events where it's mandated that you would come. And they come. And, and, you know, when you look into the, 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 the Lord Jesus' Passion Week, you look into the Garden of Gethsemane and all the events that's going on there, you look at why uh, the religious establishment moved quickly to try and get Jesus uh, for trial and executed and why they did it when they did it. Because at one point, the crowds were with Christ. They were with him. And this is this point. Look at verse 37. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the disciples are at a, at a, at a point where they are um, at fever pitch. Why? Because this is Messiah. This is Messiah. They know what the event is here. And we're going to look at this in a little bit. And you should know this well. These are things that shouldn't be unfamiliar to you. These prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus was fulfilling. One of the greatest, greatest evidences of, of Christ being who he was and who he said he was, was the fulfilled prophecy. And the disciples now are at this point where it's the 10th of Nisan. They know that the Passover lamb is selected. They know what Christ has been saying. They, they know the whole concept of, of Messiah. They know that everything is, is, is building up. And it's a, it's a tremendous event in the Jewish calendar. It's a time of deliverance and where they remember deliverance. And they know everything that's going on. And they've been with this man. And they've seen his miracles. And they've seen his healings. And they've seen his great teaching that none can understand understand how is this man able to teach the way he teaches he's not an educated man he hasn't gone up through uh, the, 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 the law schools like others but yet he bewilders them at every turn this man must be messiah this is it this is the moment so the disciples are built in uh, turn to john chapter 12 because the crowd is built in they're, they're gathered here They're ready to receive their Messiah. John chapter 12 and verse 12 says, On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, went forth to meet him, and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. So, say they took palm branches and went forth to meet him. Now, again, remember the crowds are with Christ. These crowds, though, are the crowds from the countryside. These are the country folk. The city folk, the Jerusalem folk, not with them as much. And it's the city folk that the Pharisees and the Sadducees turn and whisper in the ear to when Barabbas is being offered for release. And they say, who would you have? And, and you, in that passage you'll see that there's whispering going on from the establishment to move the people. But it's primarily the city folk. These folk are the people from the countryside. Where has Jesus done the majority of his ministry? To the country folk. The country folk. So city folk, you're not as privileged. City folk always think they're more privileged than country folk, don't they? But they're not. They're not. 
the Lord Jesus ministered to them. And, and the crowds was, were with him and they gathered, they heard about him. And Jesus, when he says, O daughter of Zion, he's referring to the, uh, the villages and the towns and the cities all around. They were accepting of him. And they're ready to meet him and they come out and they, they put palm trees before him and uh, cried, Hosanna. Now, often we focus on the Hosanna, um, not focusing too much on the palm tree. Why, why the palm tree? Why were they doing what they were doing? Why palm trees? Why did they lay palm trees? Well, firstly, there's a practical reason. They are um, presenting him as, as an, in a royal procession almost, and they're marking his way as he comes down the Mount of Olives, a very uh, a kind of ceremonial type of thing to do to give him a bit of a, a procession because they are uh, welcoming him as their Messiah. But the, the real reason behind the palm trees is that that remember Passover, this whole time of Passover is a time of remembrance for the Jew of his deliverance out of Egypt. And when they were in Egypt, they were under the foot of the Egyptians. They were an oppressed people. And when you get to, to, to where we are in history now, as we read in, in, in the Gospels at the Passion Week, they are once again oppressed under the foot of the Roman Empire. And the Jews are fiercely nationalistic, and that's tied up in their identity. Um, you know, God preserved them as a people through all their exiles, brought them back as a nation, and uh, that's God's hand. We know that as a sovereign hand, but also there's a there's a, a, a fierce nationalism and identity in being a Jew. So, you know, the thought that everything's going on in Jerusalem uh, nice and easy and nobody is upset that the Romans are there is a completely false notion. They wanted deliverance from the oppressor. They wanted out of the hands of the Romans and they wanted uh, God to do that again for them. And the Romans, you know, they allowed them to live in the land, but they were, they were harsh on them. There's no doubt about it. They were, the Jews were oppressed under the Roman regime. It's said that the lowest tax bracket for the Jew under Roman rule was 80% of what he earned. I think it's bad in this country. Imagine getting taxed 80% of what you earn. Goodness me. The farmers of the fields had to give 50% yield to the Romans. It was an occupation. They were an oppressed people. The, the temple, you know, the holiest place in Judaism, over the, the, the top of it had that Roman fortress, the Antonio Fortress, looking down. You think about that. You know, that's your holiest site. It's your holiest site. But to have Gentiles peering over the top of it, no seclusion from them, watching your every move, knowing that you have to appease them. The Jewish man and the Jewish person, for the majority, hated the Roman rule. Hated the Roman rule. They hated it. They didn't want to be part of it. So Passover is this time where nationalism is reaching its, its peak. And, and the Romans knew this. And that's why they would have uh, extra guards in there. Because if anything's going to kick off, if there's going to be an uprising of the Jews, if those Jews are going to uh, cause trouble, this is the time that they're going to cause trouble. Because all the country folk are coming in. And the country folk are more hardcore than the city folk, aren't they? And they come in. And the Romans are thinking, this is going to be the time. So this is the swell, the ground swell of what's going on here. 
The Messiah is coming. And all of them would have known the prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, we know it well. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Notice there's difference there. Daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just having salvation, lowly riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So they knew the prophecy. They knew they wanted out of the Roman rule. They knew that the kingdom was promised to them. They knew that it was an earthly kingdom. The Jews were were clued into Old Testament prophecy. They knew this kingdom was going to be earthly. They didn't think like many today that this kingdom is just a heavenly one and would never have any manifestation on this earth. The Jews knew that the prophets of old had promised a kingdom where Messiah would come, rule from the throne of David, which is an earthly throne, not a heavenly throne. And he would rule with a rod of iron. And Israel as a nation would once again be free and ruled by their Messiah. So you've got all this going on at Passover. And I'm sure for Passover after Passover after Passover, especially Passovers when they were occupied, especially Passovers when they were being suppressed by a foreign Gentile nation, that they would have looked and waited for this prophecy, gone to the Mount of Olives day after day during that week and waited for Messiah to come down. And here it is, this man of Galilee who had gone throughout the nation. Performing miracles, healing, teaching, stilling the nature, the storms, raising people from the dead, authenticating his messiahship. Is he the one? And down the hill he comes. And they gather, they shout, it's he's here, Jesus has come. And the palm trees come out. Because their Messiah is coming to deliver them. And again, palm trees. Why palm trees? Because the palm was a Jewish symbol. It was a national Jewish symbol. It was a symbol of their independence. In AD 25, um, Herod Antipas had a coin minted. And on the back of it, he he had Caesar one side. And then on on the other side, he had... Uh, a palm, palm branch put on it. And he did this because the Jews um, didn't, especially the religious Jews, wouldn't, were kind of against holding money that just had Caesar all over it. So as a little bit of appeasement, he put the palm tree on, on one side of the coin because that was a national symbol of Jewish independence. So when they gather and they, they, they've anticipated this event, that this is their Messiah, the one that's coming in to, to deliver them, they put the palm trees out. And, 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 and it's to mark their nationalism, but it's also to protest. It's also to show the Romans that are around, hidden in plain sight, that Israel is going to be independent once again. You'll see this. You'll see this principle in practice in occupied nations. You'll see it um, in, in places, and it may be going on in the Ukraine today, where, in places where the Russians are still have uh, uh, power and authority, certainly in the East maybe. And you'll have those that are uh, obviously pro-Ukrainian and, and don't want to be part of the Russian rule. Now if they were to go out with a, a Ukrainian flag and walk down the street, they're putting themselves in danger. Or if they had to put banners up saying, you know, we want Russia out. Well, they're a target, aren't they? 
And remember, you know, the, the Romans are in high guard. For as edgy as the Jewish people are awaiting their Messiah, the Romans are ready. And any kind of any kind of nonsense, they would have stamped it down because they could not have a revolt, especially on this day, because of the numbers and the passion that was happening in Jerusalem. So, you know, taking that example, you may not be able to, and for a Ukrainian, they may not be able to fly a yellow and blue flag, but what you'll see is they may put washing out on their washing line and it'll be a blue pair of jeans and a yellow top. And the, the, the Russians come and say, you're fine. If it wasn't a flag, it's just my clothes. I think they did this. I think I remember seeing this. Um, I can't remember who, who particularly it was. It was the space station. That was it. Do you remember, do you remember this during the war where they, uh, the astronauts went to the space station and they all had yellow and blue. Their space suits, were, were, they were done in yellow and blue. And I think, this, I think this was the Americans done this, I'm not sure. But the reason it was given, why did they arrive in the space station um, with, with the yellow and blue uh, suits on, the reason was given that was all the material that they had to be able to... But what was it? It was a protest without being a protest. And that's what was happening on Palm Sunday. So the palm trees were very symbolic of Israel, but they were also symbolic of what they thought was going to happen. This was it. This was the moment. Their Messiah was coming, and he was coming down uh, the Mount of Olives, that blessed place to go into Jerusalem to be received. And they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hebrew words for, root words for Hosanna are found in Psalm 118, verse 25. Let's, let's turn there. You should know this, but let's turn there. This is where we get Hosanna from. Psalm 118, verse 25. Save now, I beseech thee. Hosanna, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee. Save us now. But notice at the end of, of Psalm 118, verse 25, it doesn't just say, save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee. It says at the end, send now prosperity. Prosperity. Because salvation to the Jewish mind wasn't just about being right with God. In fact, for a lot of them, it wasn't even about that. It was about their independence. It was about their promises as a nation. It was about their prosperity. And that's what they tied Messiah in with. Now, Messiah would come and will come and will bring that prosperity to that land. There's no doubt. So they weren't completely wrong in this. But their, their attitude towards this, this had superseded who he was. And as he comes down from the hill, this is what they're looking for. They're looking for the Messiah that would bring them prosperity. And he has all the credentials. All the credentials. He has proved himself in his ministry. And these country folk that have gathered around, that have followed him maybe for years, are now there and the, the news gets out into Jerusalem and the, and, the, and the Jews come out of the city and everybody's waiting and the palm trees are down and down he comes. This is the one. This is the king. And the cries are there. Send prosperity. Save us now. Messiah. He's it. He's the man. But... They wanted a Messiah that would save them from the Romans. 
They wanted a Messiah that would bring in the kingdom. They wanted a Messiah that was a military man. It was a motivated man that would save them from the oppressors, deliver them like Moses had delivered them all those years ago. But rather than fleeing out of Egypt, they would be where they were and the kingdom would be set up and prosperity would come. What happens? Matthew 27, verse 38 and 39, we know. Not four days later, I believe, 14th of Nisan, Matthew 27, verse 38. There were there two thieves crucified with him, the one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Crowds have gone. The crowds have gone from Christ. Because the man that promised so much to their minds delivered so little. The triumphal entry was triumphant. But how could Messiah be taken by the oppressors? How could he be hung upon a cross? A tree, contrary to anything in Judaism. How could he, the one who was to be the powerful, military, mighty ruler that was promised in the Old Testament, how could Jesus be it? The crowds have gone. This was not the Messiah that Israel wanted. The man that hung upon the tree was a pale comparison to the man that came down the hill. And to them they looked upon him and they mocked him. They mocked him. How many of those country folk that had been and followed him and had come to welcome him in had walked home, heads down, heartbroken. It's not him. It's not him. He wasn't Messiah. He was just a man. See, the response of the crowd was while they thought they were getting what they wanted was one of rapture, was one of joy, was one of be our king. Be our king. But the minute, the minute it changed and they didn't get what they wanted, although the world was getting what it needed, the minute they didn't get what they wanted, Messiah just became a man and was cast off. He was cast off. Now as we think about our response to the king, I wonder, is that you this morning? Is it Jesus your way? And when you don't get your way, he's no Jesus at all. I don't know how many people I've met in life that have come to the Lord, have healed him as king, and then the minute he hasn't delivered what they wanted, They've discounted him as a mere man. A mere man. Jesus in our terms. God doing it our way. I I mean, honestly, I can think of no more ridiculous thing than for a human being to demand God do anything. But we do it. We do it. 
Many people come to Christ on false promises. You know, your life in this earth will be better. Prosperity will come. And then when it doesn't come, Jesus is cast off. And try some other God on. False God. Try some other concept, some other way of life to make our life in this world better. I wonder, is that your response? Jesus on the good days, but when he's not working for you, nah, take him or leave him. <laughs> Happy to have Jesus in your terms, but not his. That's not yielded obedience. That's not the correct response to the king. It's not Jesus on our terms. It's Jesus on his terms. It's not Jesus the way we want him. It's Jesus the way he is. It's not what Jesus can do for us. But it's what we can do for the Lord of glory that saved our lives. The response of the crowd... While Jesus seemed to offer what they wanted, the minute the plan changed, he's abandoned, he's mocked, he's reviled, he's cast aside. I wonder, is that you this morning? You want to pick Jesus up Sunday morning? Throw him to the world the rest of the week. Oh, my life's in a mess, my life's in a mess. Lord, help me. You're the king of glory. Step in, step in, save me from this. And the Lord graciously does it. And then you throw him aside again. Don't need you now. You're not the Lord that I want. You're the Lord that I want to help me, but not the one to challenge me. Not the one to uh, look into my life and speak into my life when things aren't right. I just want you to fix it when it goes wrong, Lord. How many in churches today do that? How many have done that today? I've been there with the Lord. Forgive me for that, but I have. But that's not the response to the king. That's not yielded obedience. That's conditional. There can be no conditions to your obedience to God. That's the correct response. Unconditional. And as we move on in this, and we will wrap up with this, we've seen the response of the crowd, and it was conditional. I want to take you to the response of the colt, the animal. And the animal puts the human being that is made in the image of God to shame in this. Look back in Luke 19, verse 35. We've seen the response of the crowd. I want to see the response of the colt. Look at verse 35. And they brought to him Jesus, him to Jesus, cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus there on. So Jesus rides uh, down the Mount of Olives on the back of this colt, and we know from earlier on this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But there's some things from the colt in, it, in, in just its life and uh, that uh, we want to see and we want to compare to, to us today as uh, sinners. Notice firstly, look at verse 30 of Luke 19. Jesus says, Go into a village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied. So notice the colt was in bondage. It was tied up. It was a slave to its master. Secondly, Jesus says, Whereon yet never a man sat 
So it's a while. It hasn't been tamed. It's not one of those ones you could sit on and go around Blackpool Beach on. Think of the fucking Broncos, the wild animals fighting against its rider. If we go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, we have another little detail. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 4. Colt was tied. It was wild. Mark 11, verse 4. And they went their way, and they found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. The word without in the Greek is exo. It means outside or apart. This animal was on the outside. Fourthly, Mark's Gospel there, 11 verse 4, it says he's in a place where two ways met. What's a place where two ways meet? It's a crossroads. It's a crossroads. So here we have this animal. He's tied. He's wild. Never a man sat upon him. He's on the outside. He's at a crossroads. And then the master calls. The master calls. And the correct response is the one that the colt does. Because he follows. He goes where he is meant to go. He performs the task that he is meant to do. He is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this colt is an absolute picture of the lost man. He's a picture of the lost man. See, before we're saved, before we're born again, before we've come to the Lord in repentance and faith and asked him to forgive us for our sins because we know we cannot do anything ourselves to get to heaven. We're just like this colt. Even though we don't realize it, we're not free. We're tied by the bonds of sin. We're caught up. And serving another master. We're wild. Our sin natures are, 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 are given free reign. And there's nothing to counter it. We're on the outside. We're not with God. We're without. And when the Lord calls. We are at a crossroads. And that may be you this morning. You may be at a crossroads. Where you're hearing the call of God in your life. That you know that you're a sinner. That you're trapped in your sin. You know there's nothing you can do to break free. And you know the Lord is calling you on to him. What is your response going to be? Is it going to be the response of the crowd? Are you going to say, well Jesus, I'll come on my terms. Because Jesus will say, no, depart from me. I never knew you. You can't come on your terms. I'm God. Or is it going to be like this cult that simply responds to the will of the master that does what he's called to do that takes the Lord down the Mount of Olives doesn't throw him off just serves humbly. This cult didn't rebel it yielded. It yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a lesson there is in that. 
There's a response of the crowd that, yes, Jesus, you're, you're wonderful. Yes, Jesus will have you as king. But whoa, 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 what are you doing? What, 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 what? You're dying? No, 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 no. You need to overthrow the Romans. You need to restore the rule in Jerusalem. You need to prosper us, Jesus. You're just another false hope. The response from the cult was simply obedience, yielded obedience. It did what the master wanted. See, it has to be Jesus on his terms and not ours. That's true obedience. That's true love. How many people at Easter will will praise the Lord and say, I love you, Lord. I love you. You save my soul. What is love? What does it truly mean? What should it mean? I don't know if I'm sure some of you are old enough to remember Barbara Woodhouse. Do you remember Barbara Woodhouse? Uh, it's funny, I was on Friday night, I was up, <laughs> I'll say this, I've been saying, haven't I? I've been, I like to use certain like, little jokes, I've brought my assistant Debbie McGee with me, and I've shared this with you, haven't I, that, that the younger people just don't know who Debbie McGee and Paul Daniels are, <laughs> they don't, they don't, so when I'm saying Barbara Woodhouse, I'm very conscious that there are people here, Christine, do you know who Barbara Woodhouse is, <laughs> they're looking at me going, not a clue. <laughs> I, I, on Friday night, I was up in the Lake District preaching at a, a thing called the Lund, which is like a gathering of, of, of you know, teenagers from all, all around. Good, good crowd of them. And I was thinking, there's things here I can't use because they just don't know. They just don't know the illustration. But I'm glad. Barbara Woodhouse. So Barbara Woodhouse, she, in one of her books called No Bad Dogs, she wrote this. And I, I think this is a wonderful illustration about what love is. And again, uh, we're using the animal. Because really, the response of man is shameful. We're using the animal as an example. She writes this. In a dog's mind, a master or mistress to love, honour and obey is an absolute necessity. The love is dormant in the dog until brought into full bloom by an understanding owner. Thousands of dogs appear to love their owners. They welcome them home with enthusiastic wagging of the tail and jumping up. They follow them about their houses happily. And to the normal person seeing the dog, the affection is true and deep. But to the experienced dog owner, this outward show is not enough. The true test of love takes place when the dog has got the opportunity to go out on its own as soon as the door is left open by mistake. And it goes off and it runs and doesn't return home for hours. That dog loves its home comforts and the attention it gets from its family. It doesn't truly love the master of the mistress as fondly as they think. True love in dogs is apparent when a door is left open and the dog still happily stays with an earshot of its owner. For the owner must be the be-all and end-all of the dog's life. Now, I think that paints a very good picture for us as believers. See, the real evidence of our faith isn't seen in our theological acumen. It isn't seen in our work, even our activity. It's found in this, our simple, yielded obedience to Christ. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. Now the other stuff will follow. 
but it begins with simple yielded obedience to Christ. What does that mean? It means that when you say you love the Lord Jesus, you mean that. That he is everything to you. Absolutely everything to you. And when the world of the door is open and the lights of sin and pleasure and all the things of self and pride are flashed up before you, when the master says, and you have opportunity, you free will, just like that dog, to run out that door and experience the pleasures of the world and then maybe come back with your tail between your legs, excuse the pun, back to the master. <coughs> Or yielded obedience. When the door is open, you don't want to go in it or through it. Because Christ is all in all to you. That you don't want to leave his presence. That's what it means to abide in him. So my question to you as we, we finish, what's your response to the king this morning? Is your response going to be the response of the crowd? Is it going to be, well, Jesus, I'll have you when I need you. I'll have you when you're working. I'll have you when it suits me. I'll have you on my terms. But when I don't need you, you're cast aside. Or when you don't deliver what I want, then you're no good to me. Or is your response going to be the response of the cult? Simple, humble, yielded obedience to the Lord. This Easter weekend, I want to challenge you. To examine your lives. Not before me, not before the church, but before your Lord, the one that you call King. What's your response going to be? Is it about you or is it about Him? That choice is yours, and you will answer for that choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,